it's a pleasure to introduce uh, Professor and Ambassador Jorge Heine, uh, who's going to talk to us about China and the Global South. Professor Heine is what's known as, in Washington as an inner and outer. He spent two thirds of his career in academia and one third in public service and has made extraordinary contributions in both areas. On his academic side, he's the uh, research professor at the uh, Hardy School of Global Studies in Boston University. His specialties are uh, international relations of the global south, uh, diplomacy, uh, democracy uh, promotion. And he's published 15 books on uh, those kinds of subjects. On his public service side, uh, he's been Chile's ambassador to India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, South Africa, Mozambique, Namibia, Swaziland, and Zimbabwe. He's been uh, Minister of National Assets of Chile and uh, Deputy Minister of Defense. Uh, nobody could be more qualified to speak on this subject. So welcome, Professor Heine. Thank you. Well, good afternoon. Let me thank the Fairbank Center for this kind invitation, and particularly Dr. William Overholt and Professor Ezra Fogel for the opportunity. When I packed my bags in Beijing after three and a half years of being posted there, a colleague told me, well, when you get to Washington, I was going to the Wilson Center, keep in mind that all conversations in Washington today end asking one question, what will China do? I was skeptical because having lived in Washington before, I know that Washington is a very self-centered place uh, that tends to look at itself more than anything else. And I wasn't quite convinced that in fact, China would generate so much interest. But after spending a year and a half in Washington from 2018 to 2019, I realized my Brazilian colleague was right. Everybody is concerned in Washington today with what will China do? So what is China up to? What I would like to do today is to answer that question by looking at one particular angle, and that is China and the global south. Now, what is interesting here is that from the very beginning, that is when what we now know as the global south and was earlier known as the third world, came into its own. And many people associate that with the Bandung Conference held in Indonesia in 1955. Uh, with leaders like uh, Nehru, Nasser, Sukarno, uh, that later would lead to the formal creation of the Non-Aligned Movement in 1961 at the Belgrade Conference. At the time, of course, Chu uh, Enlai was there as well. And the, there was this ambivalent relationship between China and what was then known as the Third World. China was interested in was willing to collaborate with 
but did not want to become a full-fledged member of a movement like the non-aligned movement. And you know, it's interesting, one might have imagined a different outcome of this. Um, China and India were very close. Um, shortly before that, in 1954, they had agreed on the Panchil principles of foreign policy, common values in, in Chinese and Indian foreign policy, yet uh, it didn't happen. And since then, China to this day uses the language of South-South cooperation, um, works closely on some issues with the G77 at the UN and uh, with the NAM on some issues, but it is not part of the NAM or you know the, the, the G77. So that's uh, one point I would like to uh, underscore. Now, since then, of course, a lot of water is passed under uh, the bridge, and uh, in 2020, we're living in a very different world from the one of uh, 1955. But what is important to keep in mind is that, if anything, in the course of the past uh, 20 years and this century, uh, China has made a renewed attempt to increase its links its presence, its trade, its investment with the developing world, which means Asia, Africa, and, and Latin America. And what I would like to share with you uh, today is my perspective as to what lies behind this, what is the dynamic, where is this leading to, and uh, what are the particular foreign policy tools and objectives that China has deployed to develop these links. Now, uh, the, first, uh, the first point that is important to underscore that is that China always insists that it is still a developing country. You may agree or disagree with it, but that is China's position, which is why when sometimes the possibility of a G2, that is the United States and China banding together as it were, both of them, as you know, represent some 40% of the world's GDP, and that the two could sort of band together and make decisions for the world. China has always rejected that, saying that it is part of the developing world, it is keen to work with other great powers, but that it is not willing to uh, partake of any such endeavor. So China continues to cultivate uh, the notion of what it called South-South cooperation, which to some sounds a bit outdated, that is maybe like the language of the you know, 60s and 70s, but it is very much present in China's vocabulary. Now, what is the sort of centerpiece of the uh, project that China has put on the table in as far as the Global South is concerned? Well, that is the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative. As it happens, I arrived in Beijing for my posting in July of 2014. And that was shortly a few months after BRI had been mooted by President Xi. And that was to become the centerpiece of uh, Mr. Xi's uh, foreign policy, and it is so uh, to this day. And I remember at the time when I uh, heard about it, read about it, talked about it with, with people, with government officials, 
scholars, journalists, there was a lot of skepticism. I myself was very skeptical. This was so grandiose, so ambitious. I mean, to recreate Eurasia, you know, how much more ambitious can you get? Um, to connect East Asia with Europe, to recreate uh, the old Silk Road and make it into the new Silk Road. All of this sounded to a lot of people, including myself, like uh, pie in the sky. <laughs> These grandiose foreign policy proposals, which we have often heard about in other countries, and that in fact, um, are a lot of smoke and mirrors, and that there isn't much behind it. Uh, the, the budgets were just uh, uh, vary from some of one, $1 trillion to $8 trillion. Um, it was said that the project would uh, go on until 2049 for the uh, centennial of the Chinese Revolution. But everything was so grand that a lot of people were very skeptical, including myself. Now, seven years have gone by since the uh, BRI was launched. And um, a lot of scholars, a lot of observers, a lot of analysts would say that in fact, things are happening, that these projects that sounded like pie in the sky are being built. Uh, we have a lot of trains, among other things, running from China to Europe. Uh, we have immense projects in Asia, in Africa, that have come into being. Um, Again, estimates vary, but some people say that maybe close to a trillion dollars is already been spent in some of these projects. Now, uh, it seems to me that beyond the sort of uh, objective of recreating Eurasia first, and then expanding this to the rest of the world, by now, it's not just recreating Eurasia, in Chinese policy, uh, the Americas have come to play a role in the BRI as well. And um, I think it's 19 countries in Latin America and the Caribbean that have signed so-called BRI MOUs, including my own country, Chile. Uh, so this is, is moving forward. And more than just recreating Eurasia, what I would submit to you is that it has become a development proposal for uh, the world and for the global south. And it is a development proposal with its own particular features. Uh, what it entails is a somewhat different notion from what development is. Um, until now, you know, the notion that in Latin America has been dominant, in fact, is the world development isn't used that much, is that progress is supposed to happen when you have macroeconomic stability, when you have low inflation, when uh, the fiscal accounts are kept in order and the business climate is right, and then somehow development will take place on its own. Well, the Chinese proposal is somewhat different. What the Chinese say is that if you create the right infrastructure and you create digital connectivity, then you will create the conditions for economic growth and development. That is what they have done. 
as you know better than I, uh, in China for thousands of years, a big challenge for the emperor was how to connect this huge country, 8 million square kilometers, with some of the highest mountains in the world, some of the longest and deepest rivers in the world, how to connect it. Well, you know, a lot of people would say that over the past 15 years, that is exactly what has happened in China. Through the bullet trains and through mobile telephony, China today is connected in a way that it wasn't in the past. And you know, a lot of people would say that part of the high rates of growth uh, that we have been seeing over the past few decades are related to this. Connectivity, good infrastructure acts as an important propellant of growth. So China is saying this has worked for us. It should work also for you. Look at it, consider it. We are able to help you. Now, uh, in that sense, what is important to keep in mind is that another question that um, kept popping up in Beijing in, in July of 2014 when I arrived, okay, this is a great proposal, but who will actually sort of follow up on it? What are the institutions that will make this happen, these grandiose projects? Well, as it happens, those institutions have been created. They include the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank. And also there is the New Development Bank in Shanghai. AIB, of course, is based in Beijing. And um, I happen to be uh, in, in Beijing. Chile joined the AIB, so I was able to uh, watch this from up close. It wasn't an easy process. As you know, there was quite a bit of opposition to it uh, from some countries. Uh, but it finally happened. So you have the proposal of the BRI. It is happening. The development projects are actually being implemented. You also have institutions that are um, following up on it, although it's not just the AIB. It's the China Development Bank, the Exim Bank. There are many uh, financial institutions that are uh, playing a role here. Now, here... This is another important element to keep in mind, uh, that strictly speaking, China didn't need the AIIB to push forward for the BRI project. It could have done it perfectly well with the China Development Bank and with Exim Bank that have you know, plenty of resources. But it is part of a certain approach to uh, foreign relations, which is, has been termed, you know, um, regional multilateralism, to bring in other countries into uh, project management uh, makes it a lot easier to uh, implement and to set them up than if it were just a strictly Chinese unilateral initiative and uh, funding program. So th that's another important thing to give mind. A lot of people were very skeptical about the AIB, that it wasn't going to work, that it was a political bank, uh, it was going to be a disaster. Well, you know, five years into its existence, it has lent some $20 billion. It has some 80 full members and another 20 prospective members. And, you know, the evaluations from the credit agencies have been quite positive. If anything, some people have said they're much too conservative. They should be a bit more 
outgoing. Now, um, you, can, you can say, well, what, what has been accomplished by the VRI? Uh, well, you know, some numbers, 200 hydroelectric dams, 41 oil and gas pipelines, the Nairobi Mombasa rail line, one, another rail line from Addis Ababa to Djibouti, a, a, a very ambitious project of a railway line from Laos all the way to the Chinese border, 440 kilometers, uh, of which about two thirds are bridges and tunnels. So difficult is the terrain. So lots of things have, have happened. How will the sort of the ultimate judgment on the BRI be? We don't know. It's a early day still. Obviously, the pandemic has uh, cast quite a bit of a shadow into uh, a number of projects with the economic slowdown. But uh, if we can make some sort of preliminary balance uh, at this point, uh, it, it has obviously a number of positive elements. So that is uh, one thing that uh, I want to sort of put front and center in China's relationship with the Global South, that is the BRI. Uh, now, let us look at um, specific areas uh, in which China has uh, developed a greater presence. And we shall look first at uh, Latin America and then at Africa. The case of um, Latin America is uh, obviously quite uh, interesting and in some ways a bit surprising. You all know, of course, that Marco Polo, uh, who uh, was part of the, uh, what is known as the Old Silk Road, never reached uh, Latin America. So it strikes some people as a bit odd that BRI uh, should actually reach out to Latin America. Latin America is um, very far from China. My own country is probably the farthest country away from China in the world anywhere. Uh, but, uh, the, you know, the, the standard line that we hear is that uh, Latin America is very marginal and uh, quite irrelevant in the larger scheme of uh, Chinese foreign policy. Now, uh, this, uh, you know, it goes so far, there's a noted a sinologist, uh, Professor Kerry Brown, uh, who in one of his books on Chinese foreign policy comments that Xi Jinping, President Xi Jinping has traveled so much that he has even visited such exotic countries as Chile. Uh, now, uh, you know, what is interesting to note is that President Xi Jinping has in fact visited Chile three times. He did that as a president in 2016, a, a visit at the, where I was present in Chile. He visited as vice president in 2011, and he visited early in 2001 when he was party secretary in uh, one of the southern provinces of China. And he would have visited a fourth time uh, for the APEC summit of November of 2019, which was ultimately suspended, and therefore he had to cancel his visit. So you ask yourself, well, how marginal is a region which deserves, as in the case of Xi Jinping? Xi Jinping has visited in the first six years of his presidency, has visited 
Latin America five times. He has visited 13 countries. Now, these 13 countries that he has visited means that he has visited more countries in six years than President Obama and President Trump have visited both of them combined in 11 years. So, though Latin America may not be central for Chinese foreign policy, it deserves a, a modest measure of attention as shown in the uh, visits that I have just mentioned. Now, this uh, process has gone hand in hand with a, a very strong growth in trade and investment from China in Latin America. To give you an idea, China Latin American trade was $10 billion in the year 2000. By 2018, it reached $307 billion. Uh, that is a 30-fold increase. Um, if we look at uh, what is happening today in the region, for South America as a whole, China is the number one trading partner. It is the number one trading partner for Argentina, for Brazil, for Chile, for Uruguay, and for Peru. Chile exports two and a half times as much to China, its number one trading partner, as it does to the United States, which is its number two trading partner. Uruguay exports more to China than it does to the United States and uh, Europe and the European Union combined. So there's been a veritable explosion of trade. And from the year 2010 onwards, there's also been a considerable increase in investment, both in uh, FDI and in uh, finance flows to Latin America. So China has become a very important partner uh, for Latin America uh, these days. And uh, it, it is something that cannot be um, that cannot be um, ignored. Um, there has been a movement there from the initial major investment that was in uh, commodities, uh, basically in oil, in copper, in iron ore, on the part of Chinese companies, to an increasing interest by uh, China to invest in infrastructure and in energy. One of the big problems in uh, Latin America is the relative lack of investment in infrastructure. And this means that uh, Latin America invests only 2.5% of its GDP in infrastructure, which compares to about 8% that is invested by uh, countries in East Asia. Um, and there's enormous potential, the way I see it, and this is something that I uh, tried to develop when I was in uh, Beijing, for uh, major investments in the development of Latin American infrastructure. Um, for example, uh, corridors between Argentina and Chile that will be able to bring the uh, goods from 
the Atlantic side towards the Pacific and then on to, chain, to China and to the rest of Asia. Um, this is something that uh, could be developed uh, with the AIIB and uh, other financial uh, entities. Uh, it hasn't quite uh, taken off, but it's something that come, can come into its own. Uh, the basic point I'm trying to make is that China, in, from its initial uh, strict focus on uh, commodities has in, in the region, has also now branched out into other areas. Uh, and that seems to me offers uh, significant uh, possibilities of working together. Now, uh, another um, region of the world where uh, China has developed a major presence is Africa. With Africa, China has more long-standing ties um, than with Latin America. They go back all the way to the 60s. Uh, some of you may remember the, the Zambia-Tanzania uh, railway project that was uh, very important. Um, Africa, of course, is um, less developed than Latin America and therefore has greater, even greater infrastructure needs. And there has been thus a considerable um, room for Chinese projects in developing African uh, infrastructure. I mentioned earlier the big uh, railway projects in uh, Kenya and in Ethiopia. Others may follow up on that. Um, according to one American Enterprise Institute study, China has invested $2 trillion in Africa since 2005. Afro-Chinese trade reached $215 billion in 2014, though it dropped to $185 billion in 2018. One country where China has put a lot of its chips is Ethiopia, and Ethiopia, of course, have done extremely well economically in the past uh, decade, some years growing at uh, two digits. So uh, there's an interesting um, example there of, of China being able to actually uh, make a difference in uh, the development of, of Africa. Uh, Huawei, the telecom company, has a presence in 23 uh, African countries and uh, it has done uh, very well. So it is not just uh, state-owned enterprise but private Chinese companies have also done uh, very well. Now there's a whole uh, rhetoric that um, has gone with it, criticizing uh, China uh, of what is uh, sometimes referred to as uh, neocolonialism. Uh, I must say I don't quite buy that. When I was ambassador in South Africa, I was cross-accredited to Mozambique. And um, once visiting Maputo, I was shown a high-rise that was totally empty. And I asked, why is that high-rise empty? And I was told, well, in 1975, when the Portuguese left, they decided to uh, fill up the elevator shafts of the building so that it couldn't be used once they left. But that is colonialism to me in its purest expression. The notion that building railways, no railway had been built in Kenya in 100 years. 
the building railways and developing digital connectivity throughout the African continent is some sort of expression of neocolonialism strikes me as really quite um, inappropriate and, and, and wrong and wrong headed. Now, uh, in those terms, um, looking at what has happened in uh, Latin America and what has happened in, uh, in Africa, there are two um, issues that have uh, come to the fore and that have received quite a bit of attention in the media and uh, from scholars. And one of them is that this uh, would be uh, essentially what has been called death trap diplomacy. That what China is doing is trying to ensnare countries in the global south with easy money and then go and take over their assets. And you know, this has become part of the discourse on China and what is China up to. And uh, this would be the case, it is argued, both in Africa, in Latin America, and uh, elsewhere. And exhibit A of that um, analysis is the port of Hambantota in uh, Sri Lanka. Um, as, a, as you know, that port is now uh, leased to a Chinese company for a 99-year period. As it happened, when I was ambassador in India, I was cross-accredited to Sri Lanka. So I know Sri Lanka well, and I also met uh, the person who was behind uh, this project, then Prime Minister, now, uh, now again, Prime Minister Rahinda Mayapaksa. Uh, and uh, what happened in the case of the port of Hambantota is has nothing to do with that diplomacy. It's good old pork barrel politics. Uh, Hambantota is the hometown of uh, Mr. Rajapaksi. And from the word go, he was determined to bring in as many uh, projects as he could to his hometown. So there is a stadium, sports stadium, with a capacity that is bigger than the population of the town. Uh, there is an airport that has no scheduled flights because there is no demand for them. And then there is this port uh, for which Mr. Rajapaksi demanded more and more Chinese financing until at some point, it simply, uh, Sri Lanka wasn't able to pay it. There was a change of government in 2015 and the new government decided as a way out to, uh, of this debts to lease the port for $1.4 billion and with that money pay part of those debts. But you know, this wasn't part of any sort of conscious Chinese policy. It was simply pork barrel politics at its best or at its worst, depending on how you want to qualify. In, in more general terms, if we want to look at the uh, bigger picture, we were talking uh, earlier before the, the start. Uh, about uh, Professor Deborah Breitigam's work from uh, John Hopkins, who has done such outstanding work on the presence of China in Africa. And you know, in her work, also in a recent study by the Rhodium Group, and another study by the Lowe Institute of Australia, who have looked at these accusations of death trap diplomacy, the 
term was originally coined by an Indian analyst, Brahma Chilani, of the um, Center for Policy Studies in, in Delhi, whom I know. And they have concluded there is no basis for it. That, in fact, obviously, when there are problems, if they are bound to be, uh, given the enormous quantity of projects in which China is involved worldwide, in uh, most, not all cases, China is willing to renegotiate the debt, to kick the can down the road, to look for solutions. Uh, rarely, uh, the, the one case is Hambantota, and as I was saying earlier, there is a good explanation as to why Hambantota ended up in a 1990 lease for a Chinese company. And from a strictly conceptual point of view, it seems to me it's also important to keep in mind that you know, it doesn't make any sense Diplomacy is about, as Bismarck famously said, it's about making the art of making friends abroad. The notion that you engage in diplomatic practice, lending money to countries so that you can take over their assets, you know, it's not exactly a recipe for making friends. It's a recipe for making enemies, if anything. So from a strictly conceptual point of view, it doesn't make any sense either. And um, uh, from a colleague of mine at the Wilson Center, now, now teaches at uh, George Washington University in DC, Stephen Kaplan. He has written some fine pieces on what he calls the patient capital. He makes the argument that Chinese companies and both state-owned and private companies have a much longer time horizon than Western companies. They are willing to invest and wait for their return on investment over a much longer time span than Western companies. And it seems to me it is important to keep that in mind uh, rather than, you know, this seems to me somewhat um, oxymoronic notion of debt diplomacy. Now, if that has been one um, set of, of criticism, there's another set of criticism. Uh, this time, you could argue uh, from the left, that China may not be engaged in debt diplomacy, but that is doing something far worse, and that is um, developing a dependent relationship with uh, the countries of the global south. You may or may not uh, recall something called dependency theory. Dependency theory was all the rage in the 60s and 70s. In developing studies, at some point it became a very, uh, dominant uh, paradigm. Uh, it was developed originally in Latin America uh, by scholars like uh, Fernando Enrique Cardoso, who was later president of Brazil and others. And what it argued essentially was that Latin America's underdevelopment uh, was largely caused by the type of external linkages it had developed with the United States and Europe. And that was something that made it basically impossible for the region to uh, develop. And uh, that theory uh, became extremely uh, powerful and, and popular and was also applied elsewhere around the world. Until in the 1990s, basically, you know, with the development of the, uh, and the growth of the so-called Asian uh, tigers, um, the theory became uh, discredited 
and basically forgot. Now, what um, some scholars are doing nowadays is they are resurrecting this and are applying it to the relationship between um, China and Latin America. And there's one important book that has recently been published, we were talking earlier about it by a noted scholar from uh, Brown University, Barbara Stollings. The book is, uh, title is Dependency in the 21st Century, The Political Economy of China-Latin American Relations. And uh, the argument, I'm simplifying, of course, but the argument is that China has come to play a, a role that is comparable to the United States uh, once in undermining development. It's a sophisticated analysis that distinguishes markets, leverage, and linkage as mechanisms that generate uh, dependency. Uh, and sort of the gist of the argument is that Chinese demand for Latin American raw materials has promoted deindustrialization. And that therefore, um, the relationship with China uh, has had a negative effect, has had a deleterious effect on, on Latin America. Uh, now, um, my problem with that is that, yes, Latin America has been deindustrializing and it has been stuck in the middle income trap uh, for far too long. Things are not well in the region. We had some major social uprisings last year, partly as a result of that situation. Today, the, the region, as you may or may not know, is the one that is most severely affected by the pandemic, with 8% um, of the world's population. Latin America has 30% of the world's uh, deaths from the pandemic, four times for the job. It is projected that uh, Latin, American will have a, Latin America will have a negative growth of 9% this year, which is the, the biggest drop for any region, any developing region, and perhaps depending on what happens in Europe, any region in the world. So things are not well in Latin America. Now, the question is, um, should we blame China for it? Because China has become such an important partner? I don't buy that. No. The, what happened is that during what is my colleague here at BU, Kevin Gallagher, refers to as the China boom from 2003 to 2013, Latin America did very well, growing at four or five percent a year, being able to uh, overcome the 2008-2009 financial crisis uh, much better than it did previous uh, financial crisis. Uh, and uh, many good things happened in, in that period. But one thing that didn't happen was that Latin America did not invest more. It did very well in this uh, commodities boom, but instead of saving for a rainy day and or investing in industry, greater manufacturing capacity, it didn't do that. The investment rate in the 90s was around 18% of GDP. In the first decade of the uh, new decade, it was 19%. So basically it stayed the same. There's a reason for it. The reason is very simple. In, among Latin American economists, uh, the word industrial policy is a no-no. 
It isn't you. You're not supposed to pick winners as the expression goes. So the notion that somehow these ranks that came in from China could have been deployed to promote greater industrialization, greater manufacturing capacity, uh, add more value to the Latin American commodities, uh, was simply not taken into account, not considered. My argument is that to blame China for that, you know, it doesn't make any sense. These are policies that are made by the Latin American governments themselves. China buys certain things, and you know, the rents that come out of that can be used by Latin American uh, governments, businessmen, entrepreneurs, in one way or another. But obviously, that hasn't happened. Now, the second problem with the, the argument on dependency uh, that I have is that what dependency is all about. Barbara Stallings is very critical of countries like Venezuela, Ecuador, and Argentina, who have been signing government-to-government -government deals as opposed to open tenders. And uh, the argument is made that government-to-government uh, -government deals lend themselves very easily to uh, shady backroom deals, as opposed to if you use uh, tenders like other countries in the region do. And the notion here is that somehow this has led countries, you know, down the garden path, as it were. Well, the whole point is that these three countries we're talking about were excluded from international credit markets. Um, none of them had access to international credit markets. China was the lender of last resort. Would they have been more independent if China had not been around? You know, both Ecuador and Argentina are now becoming much more friendly with the United States. Uh, Argentina is negotiating with the IMF. Uh, Ecuador has uh, aligned itself very closely with Washington, trying to obtain loans and facilities, uh, while still keeping good relations with China. Uh, would they be better off today if, say, 10 years ago, China had not been available to lend them money and to finance projects? I don't think so. <laughs> the notion, and here is it's a very interesting problem. Traditionally, Latin America had depended on the United States and on a few Western European countries. For 200 years, those were the basic partners, those were the basic sources of trade, of investment, of finance. Now there's a third part, it's China. So the notion that because there is a third party, the region becomes more dependent, I find doesn't make sense. If you diversify your diplomatic trading and investment partners, by definition, you are less dependent. You have more options that are available to you. So in that sense, it seems to me, one can obviously argue that more can be done to promote Latin American industrialization, that China could play a bigger role in there. Uh, but that is a problem that has to do with the decisions made by policymakers in Latin America, rather than you know, blame it on China, as it were. It is for that reason, it seems to me, to answer the question uh, of the title of this uh, talk, is that, no, uh, there is no that trap diplomacy. 
And no, China is not in the business of promoting greater dependence. Uh, those are things that have to be dealt with by uh, the countries uh, themselves. Thank you. Um, while, while we're waiting for um, Ezra and Bill to come back on here, I just want to say, for those of you who want to submit questions, please do so in the Q&A tab below. Um, if you want to submit anonymously, you may do so. Um, I think there's an anonymous submission option. If not, please identify your name and your affiliation. Um, thanks. Ezra, you're muted. You need to unmute. There we go. Okay, now you can hear me? Yes. Uh, I think uh, all of us are grateful for that very broad gauge talk that you have from the perspective of a diplomat who has served in so many parts of the world uh, and has also had a scholarly background and presented us with such a broad gauged uh, perspective. One of the uh, questions, let me start with a couple of questions. One question is, how big is the investment China has made in personnel who can deal with Latin America? Uh, some of us have been quite impressed uh, with the range of language treat, uh, teaching in China and the, with such a large um, uh, cadre of talent that they have uh, tra uh, trained diplomats in many parts of the world who can understand uh, the issues of local countries and can work well with them. How would you rate the personnel that China has applied uh, to Latin America? Oh, that's it's a great question. Let me tell you the following. The, uh, when I was in, in Beijing, you've made a change since then, but when I was in Beijing, the Latin American division in the foreign ministry had uh, in, in, on site, some 60 diplomats, six all. And uh, China has embassies uh, in 16 Latin American countries. Most of the uh, ambassadors and the staff speak fluent Spanish. Uh, and, you know, they have been very effective. And one of the things uh, they have done, and this is something I've been uh, writing about, they have been very effective also using uh, social media. Uh, they have taken to Twitter, like ducks uh, to water. And uh, they have developed a very different profile from the um, you know, old style, traditional Chinese diplomats, which tend to be quite uh, wooden and very uh, rigid in their bureaucratic approach to things. The ambassadors that we have in Latin America, as uh, elsewhere, have a different take. They engage the media. Uh, very actively and have a very uh, lively public presence, uh, which is, has made, uh, in my judgment, uh, quite a difference. Well, thank you. Uh, how can uh, diplomats uh, and the, the uh, room to American diplomats now uh, in Latin America? Sorry, what was the question again? 
what how the range of uh, Chinese diplomats uh, compare with America, U.S. Uh, range of our diplomats in dealing with Latin America in sure. terms of our knowledge and breadth and preparation? Sure. Well, obviously, um, you know, American uh, diplomats uh, are, you know, very well trained and very capable and uh, obviously play a very significant and important role. When they are there, um, in the case of Chile, for example, my own country, and something similar can be said about others, there hasn't been a U.S. ambassador since January of 2018. So it makes a difference when you have a head of mission uh, than when you don't, you know. So that can be a problem, you know, when there is no ambassador on site. Um, that, it seems to me, can be, can be a real problem. Another issue that the United States, of course, is very concerned about is whether some of these commercial relationships will begin to have a national security role, both in terms of the high technology uh, and in terms of the port facilities. There's a new report uh, that just came out from the um, Asia Society, uh, Danny Russell as author, uh, said that when ports are built in various countries around the world, there is room for millions of those ports. It has not yet moved in that direction in many ports, but it has built the uh, basis so that it could develop a, a larger role in national security. And that's something that uh, Americans, of course, now are very concerned about China's national security activities uh, in the South China Sea, uh, can see potential for expanding into Latin America and Africa, as well as the BRI. Uh, what's your take on whether there are any signs in Latin America that uh, China is beginning to use its contacts or at least lay the basis so that it can play a larger national security role? Well, you know, there is a, a base in uh, southern Argentina which, you know, it's a Chinese base and uh, they do their raiders, they monitor um, you know, space and uh, undertake all sorts of uh, sort of uh, sky watching activities that has, you know, generated some controversy uh, as to what its ultimate uh, objectives are. And, uh, you know, so that is one question. Uh, but the broader point, it seems to me though, obviously, you can say, you know, um, anything can ultimately have national security, you know, TikTok can have national security implications. Um, you know, I was in Washington when the question of the subways, uh, the possibility that a Chinese company would participate in a tender for building subway cars for Washington Metro. And that was considered a great danger. Why would you want to spy on people using subway cars instead of telephones or computers? Something is somewhat beyond me. So, in a sense, it seems to me anything can be developed into a, a national security threat. My point is that China is a big trading nation. Uh, Latin American countries are big traders. We depend on our exports. The growth right now 
is in China. I was just looking at the numbers. Uh, in the case of Chile, uh, in the first eight months of this year, uh, exports to China grew by 9% year on year. They fell in two digits to the United States, to Japan, to the EU. So even after uh, the pandemic, when we are over it, uh, and right now, uh, the growth that is taking place is in China. You know, I think the OECD just came up with a report saying that uh, the one country among the G20 that will have positive growth this year is going to be China. So you know, uh, where do you go to sell your wares? Now, now it seems to me there can be legitimate secu national security concerns on the part of the United States, but they should be you know, identified and dealt with to say in broad terms that you know, buying and selling with China or having investment from China is per se uh, somewhat that is unacceptable is not, it seems to me, uh, the way to go. <laughs> the key trend in Latin American international relations, and this is something I've written on, over the past 20 years has been to diversify its international links away from strictly the United States and strictly Western Europe. The notion that from now on, you know, Latin American nations should need some sort of permit slip from Washington to do business with other countries, particularly in Asia where the growth is, uh, strikes many as very odd. Another issue that, uh, of course, uh, Americans and Europeans, Australians are very concerned not about is human rights mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the activities of China in dealing with uh, uh, Uyghurs uh, and with Tibetans and uh, with Hong Kong uh, have aroused a very deep feelings of anti-Chinese sentiments. Um, how have these uh, 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 views uh, affected Latin America? Had, has Latin America as a whole accepted the same kind of perspective uh, as, um, say, Europe, the United States, and Japan? Well, that's another uh, very good question. Well, obviously, uh, human rights are a universal concern. Uh, we have, in, in Latin America, in our recent past, we have had serious problems with that. Therefore, it is a concern. It is something that is present. It is something that is present in the public debate. It is something that governments uh, consider. Uh, but, you know, it is not the only thing that is considered. Uh, when we look at our national interest, we look at the broad range of issues. Uh, they include economic issues. They include political issues. They include um, multilateral questions. And human rights is uh, obviously uh, one of them. Um, the, fir the first question I would call upon is a colleague of yours from Boston University who has uh, joined with us, and that's Mignette. And uh, she has two questions. One, has uh, Chinese engagement in Latin America uh, grown exponentially because of Xi Jinping personally, given the four visits that you mentioned? Has he personally played a role in the Latin America? Uh, that's one question. And the second question is, 
what is the effect of the pandemic on uh, attitudes toward China? And uh, has it involved some of the same kind of responses as in the United States? Okay. Well, uh, I will say this. There are two things here. One is the sort of the economic dynamic that is uh, in place. And the uh, trade growth, for example, that has been so fast over the past 20 years, you know, has gone very much uh, on its own. But I would say that uh, the fact that President Xi Jinping has taken Latin America so uh, seriously with his visits, with the uh, agreements that have been uh, signed, has given an additional impetus uh, to this relationship. I had a chance to see this myself. In, a three and a, in the three and a half years that I was in, in Beijing, I had four highest levels, highest level visits. Uh, two from President Bachelet to China, one by President Xi to Chile, and one by Prime Minister Li Keqiang to Chile. Uh, you sign agreements, and obviously these visits give an important impetus to the relationship. Uh, in the case of Chile, uh, for example, uh, we uh, upgraded the FTA that uh, had been signed in 2005 to a sort of FTA 2.0. Um, Chile also joined the Asian Investment and Infrastructure Bank. Um, Chile became the lead exporter of fruit to China, believe it or not. So lots of things happened because of the sort of economic trends, as it were, but also because of the impetus given by uh, the leadership. And so in that sense, it seems to me that President Xi has played uh, an important role in putting uh, Latin America not front and center, but giving it a, you know, a not insignificant role in Chinese foreign policy. And that obviously has an effect. On the question of the pandemic, yes, obviously in Latin America, people uh, were uh, upset about the emergence of the virus or the fact that China couldn't contain it uh, in, in, in Wuhan and the fact that it you know, reached uh, the whole world. Obviously, that did not go down well at all. And I've already mentioned how uh, serious and, and uh, tremendously uh, deleterious effect the pandemic has had in Latin America. That said, at the same time, my own perspective is that people in Chile and also elsewhere are impressed by two things. One is by the way China has managed to uh, contain uh, the pandemic once it erupted and how it has managed to contain the effects within uh, China as compared to you know many other countries that haven't and two with you know what is known as mask diplomacy the way China has engaged countries in the region to provide uh, medical devices and uh, all sorts of things to help uh, the countries deal with the pandemic in July there was a very interesting meeting uh, between uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi had uh, virtually and a group, a dozen Latin American uh, foreign ministers, uh, led by the Mexican foreign minister who is heading CELAC, the community of Latin American Caribbean states, to look at uh, ways in which China can cooperate in uh, fighting the pandemic in Latin America. There was a commitment by China of uh, $1 billion in that regard. So uh, things are happening. And as a result of that, uh, the image that uh, China has in this 
moment in Latin America has uh, improved from what it was in January and February. Uh, Ambassador, you mentioned a number of uh, scholars who've done work on Latin America, and the one you gave perhaps most attention to is Professor Barbara Stallings. I'm happy to report that Barbara Stallings was listening to your talk today, and she has a question. I wonder, Nick, if it's possible to let uh, Barbara uh, push the button so that she could, in herself, uh, present her opinion and her question uh, to the ambassador. Is that possible, Nick? Um, Ezra, yes, I think it is. Here she is. Okay, uh, Professor Stallings. Barbara, okay, can you, hear, can you hear me? Yes, yes, we can. Ezra, it's nice to see you. <laughs> it's nice to see you, Barbara, and welcome back. Thank you, know you very much. Ezra and I know that's each other from the Japan days when I used to work on Japan rather than China. So. <laughs> that's right, that's right, indeed. Anyway, um, I really appreciate the opportunity to, I would say, begin a conversation with Jorge about some of these issues. Um, somehow we're always in different parts of the world, um, so we have to do it by Zoom. Um, but I hope that we can continue this discussion. So let me just put a few ideas on the, on the table, and I'm sure that he will um, want to get back um, to counter some of them. The first thing I would say is that there are two, this is going back to um, the 60s and 70s, there are really two kinds, two versions of dependency theory. One is a quite unsophisticated version, um, which essentially says that external forces determine what goes on in developing countries. And they even invented the phrase that the development of underdevelopment. But there was a much more sophisticated version associated with the name of Fernando Enrique Cardoso, which said, yes, external forces are important, but the important thing is to understand the relationship between external and internal external forces, internal forces, economic and political. It's this second more sophisticated version, which I think is worth exploring at least um, in the terms of China, Latin America. I actually put a question mark in my, the title of my book. It says, um, dependency in the 21st century, question mark, um, the political economy of China, Latin American relations. So I just think these are things that are worth thinking about. Um, the most important thing to me is this the huge asymmetry in size of the countries and the fact that China is such an important market that Latin American countries are willing to go back to essentially their 19th century relations with Britain and export commodities and import industrial goods. There are lots of well-known problems with um, commodity exports, especially volatility which means that it's very hard for any country, but especially small developing countries, um, to manage their economies with prices going up and down and their exports going up and down. Um, for example, in the case of Latin America, 70% of all commodity, of all exports going from Latin America to China are based on four products, oil, copper, iron ore, and soy. That's it, 70%. Also, only four countries produce 80% of the relationships of trade. So it's a very um, asymmetric relationship in, in various senses. Um, Jorge's colleague, whom was, was also mentioned, Kevin Gallagher, has, with colleagues also at BU, 
have done some important work on the way China has a negative impact through these commodity exports on environment, the environmental situation in, um, in Latin America. Um, but I think that one thing I do want to endorse that Jorge said I believe very much, and that is diversification. I'm completely in favor of that. But I do think that it makes a difference what kind of relationships we're talking about. I, I divide Latin American countries into two groups, what I call a Venezuela kind of group, which is willing to do deals in the back room with no transparency, lots of corruption, and what I call the Chile kind of, of Latin American country, which demands that all international partners, including China, um, behave by rule of law, um, engage in, um, in auction kinds of um, procedures to get access to procurement. So I think there are a number of very serious problems with the China-Latin American relationship, but I agree with Jorge that this is not just the China doing it to Latin America. It's China and Latin Americans engaging in a what has been in many cases a downward kind of relationship, but it can be an upward kind of relationship as well. And I think that diversification is really crucial in making that a more positive story um, come about. So we sort of right. agree on many things, but I think we disagree on a few, and I hope we can um, continue our conversation. But thanks for letting us start it. Jorge, through you to no. respond. Uh, look, let, let me give you an example to be very uh, specific. I prefer sort of inductive reasoning to deductive reasoning. Chile is the biggest producer and the biggest exporter of copper in the world. It has 29% of the world's proven reserves of copper. China is the biggest consumer of copper and uh, Chile exports uh, much of it to China. Now, you would think that given those conditions, if there is one thing that Chile would do was to develop refining capacity in copper to add more value to copper, which is one thing we have. Mm -hmm. Well, as it happens, believe it or not, copper refining technology is more advanced in China than it is in Chile. If that doesn't show a sort of short-sightedness uh, that is endemic, it seems to me, in many of our countries, and that you know we might have to resort to sort of Chinese technology to refine our own copper if we wanted to add more value to it, indicates it, it's a much deeper problem than the relationship with China. It shows a certain mentality of which basically, you know, uh, these are commodity producing countries. In the case of Chile, it is done relatively well, but there's a sense we're doing well so far, we don't need to change. So let us keep things as they are. And my emphasis here is that this is a problem that we have to face ourselves in government, in business, in science. Um, the amount of R&D that Chile invests from its GDP is 0.38. Now, you can imagine with that kind of investment in R&D, it's very difficult to innovate, to develop new technologies, to do new things. 
So that is, I would argue, the underlying problem. China is a partner, is a market. It diversifies our international opportunities. I would argue that Latin America is better off by having three main international partners rather than having only two. And that should be the right perspective. In terms of industrializing, these, those are decisions that we have to make ourselves. Could I just make one small comment in response? Quickly, quickly. Okay. Chile is doing something new. It's called lithium. Mm -hmm. So the Chinese have bought into the main Chilean lithium company and are insisting that the, Chi that the Chileans have to export raw lithium to China rather than refining it in Chile. So it's not just that the Chileans are um, not concerned, but there are some negative aspects as well. But I agree, three partners are definitely better than two. Well, it seems to me that depends on how much precious exercise the Chilean government should do something about it. I think lithium offers a great opportunity with everything that has to do with, you know, uh, e-transport, uh, making lithium batteries. Why should we export lithium just in its raw form? Uh, we should try to get a piece of the action. Um, here is a question from Sarah Wong, uh, who is a director of the Center for Asia Pacific Studies at a Polytechnic University in Ecuador. It has to do with the various populist governments in Latin America that have taken on heavy debt. And the question uh, she raises is it how can we get greater transparency in the debt processes? What is required uh, to get more transparency in how that is arrived at and how it uh, is dealt with? Well, that's a, a, a great question, you know, and in, in, a, in an ideal world, these processes would be extremely uh, transparent. In the real world, you know, countries that are excluded from the international capital market, like Ecuador was for a time, like Venezuela is to this day, like Argentina uh, was for quite some time. Um, you know, beggars cannot be choosers. They take whatever is available. <laughs> In this particular case, China was the land of last resort. And well, you deal with what you have, you know. So when you uh, are angling for finance from a position of weakness, uh, you will be in a very difficult position to demand, you know, great transparency. This is these are just uh, this is just the way uh, capital markets work. Uh, somebody has taken the liberty of asking a question in Spanish. Uh, my Spanish is not very good, but let me try to read the question uh, from Philippe Friedman and see if you can understand my terrible Spanish. Por qué los empresarios argentinos en uh, um, I, I couldn't quite make out the question, sorry. Petra, we yeah. can translate it for you. Okay. So uh, the question was, let me just um, double, I'm I, sorry, I lost it. It was, um, why would, uh, entrepreneurs invest in Latin America if they're not able to compete uh, with industries subsidized by China. 
Well, you know, that is a, a very broad question. One would have to look at you know, which industries are uh, subsidized uh, by China, uh, which are not. Um, I would say that, you know, the Latin American middle income trap in which we find ourselves and have found ourselves for a long time, uh, it's, it's about time we did something about it. That means uh, developing our own R&D and innovation capacity. Uh, you know, a lot of people have commented on this. Countries like the Scandinavian countries, like Australia and New Zealand, they've managed to build up uh, high-income economies from economies that were initially based on natural resources and commodities. And it seems to me there's no reason, uh, whatever Chinese companies put on the market, that our countries cannot do the same. The reason that isn't happening is because, you know, some very uh, self-conscious decisions have been made not to apply uh, industrial policy, quote unquote, uh, because it is considered a dirty word. And, you know, actions have consequences. And that is why uh, we live in the present uh, circumstances as uh, hewers of wood and drawers of water, as the saying goes. The final question is from Steve Schinkel, which is this. China has large fishing fleets that have encroached on the Galapagos Islands, Argentina and elsewhere in Latin America. This seems like an extractive strategy, along with on-land issues like copper mining in Peru. This has the potential to do ecological damage. How is this perceived in Latin America? It is, a re is it a regional security threat? Do Chinese loans provide leverage over other countries to look the other way over environmental and uh, fishing uh, advances? Look, my own view is that, you know, these fishing fleets uh, do enormous damage, uh, that Latin American government should not allow it, loans or no loans, that we must protect our fishing stock in our oceans and uh, do the needful. And um, be it China or any other country, we should do the right thing and protect our oceans because, you know, it's, it's one of the most valuable things we have. I'm afraid our time is up, but I think I speak for our audience when I say uh, we're very appreciative that uh, uh, Professor and Ambassador Heine uh, has given us such a broad-ranging, well-informed perspective on China's relation with uh, Latin America and a lot of uh, food for thought. Thank you very much, Ambassador. Thank Heine. you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Fogel. Thank you, Dr. Robert. Bye-bye.